Good morning, everybody. It's uh, officially Christmas season. I know every year it's a common saying like, wow, did that come like exceptionally quick? But it just like the last two years just feels like a blur. Like I can't, it's like, how many of you have been guilty of putting the wrong date still 11 months into the year? You know what I'm talking about? Some of you don't because you're on top of it. Your life's all held together. Great. Sometimes still it's like it's like 2019 still right which is kind of i'm getting sidetracked uh it's kind of weird just thinking about it being in the 2020s still to me because when i was a little kid that's where they went to in the future like in back to the future it's just bizarre it's bizarre they made science fiction movies about the time you now live in it's a great way to start this sunday series okay so this means we're officially in the Christmas season. This means a number of things. One, it means we get to sing Christmas songs, which is great uh, because I, I personally love Christmas songs. Not, not the kind of generic modern stuff, not talking about like Deck the Halls or Jingle Bells, but the rich kind of Christmas songs that speak of, of the rich message and theological truths that Christmas gives us. So I love that. Um, secondly, it means that we are in a new series. Just for a month, we're going to pause the book of Matthew. And for December, we'll be in this series entitled Why this jubilee. I'll talk more about that in a moment. Third, it means that also <clears throat> if we had an, uh, an accurate address for you, you got uh, our year-end letter, and that year-end letter reviews sort of the, the accomplishments and victories from the previous year, as well as kind of pushes us forward into the upcoming year. It's also a reminder for year-end giving at the church, and for those of you who've been coming for quite some time, you know the drill. If not, year in giving at this church is, is pretty important because statistically nonprofits, and that includes churches, nonprofits rely on roughly 25% of their entire annual income coming in the month of December. So December's, as far as giving is concerned, has to be a pretty significant year. And so what that means here uh, for us at the Gilroy campus is that above what would be a normal budget kind of month, we need to bring in roughly $200,000 above that because we rely on that massive support at the end of the year. And it's 25% for nonprofits across the country, and we're no different. So I don't, I'm completely confident um, that we will We'll hit that. This church has been incredibly generous and faithful with their giving in, in difficult times. And so I think we all, know, we all know the importance of that. And we want to be as financially healthy and stable as possible as a church to be about the mission of the church without hindrance. And we've been doing that and we'll continue to do that. Now, this series, Why This Jubilee, uh, is taken from a lyric you guys just heard and are probably familiar with. In the song, Angels We Have Heard on High, it says, Shepherds, why this jubilee? And it's a question, like, why are you so happy? And the answer to that is, they got good news. They got the gospel. And as Christians, we are a forever and always good news people. It's in our blood. It's in our DNA. It's who we are. It's what we offer the world. We're a good news people. And that is in good times and bad times. So if the economy isn't great, still got good news. If you go to work and you found out two new people whom you hate just got hired and you're going to be working with them for the next 10 years, still got good news, man. Even if the sky is falling, the Christian is forever and always a good news person. If the sky is falling, you still got good news. Now, it doesn't mean there's nothing bad. It doesn't mean that you might not be hurting or suffering or troubled with this. But even if all this stuff is going on here, 
in the midst of that, you still at least got this. You got this piece of good news and that changes everything. So to be looking at how this gospel changes people, like why this jubilee, what is the gospel message? What does it do to people? And then why is there this joy given? And hence the question, like where'd this come from? Why this jubilee? Now, there's several stories we'll be looking at through the month of December to kind of examine this theme, but I wanted to, to pick a good one to start it off. And there's all kinds of different stories we can go to, especially around the Christmas season. Um, you know, why this jubilee? We could ask that of the shepherds in the Christmas story. We could ask that question of the magi, the wise men. We can ask that question of Mary and Joseph and have all these wonderful things. But I wanted to do it good and start off the series right. So we're going to be looking at the first week, uh, why this jubilee, at a story of a man who is an Ethiopian eunuch. Kind of bizarre. Didn't think I was going to say that, huh? You're kind of like, is this real? If you've been coming to this church for some time, you know that like we have a record for the last three years, I think, having weird kickoffs to Christmas messages. It's like a genealogy, a weird verse from Leviticus. Uh, we don't do it intentionally. It's just sort of, it's what our hearts gravitate to. So, why this Jubilee part one? A story about an Ethiopian eunuch. It's from the book of Acts. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Okay, so where are we? We are in the book of Acts. The early church movement has just begun. We are after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we're seeing the first Christians go out and preach the gospel. And all kinds of people are becoming followers of Jesus. We just saw this guy Philip in Samaria preached the gospel. People are becoming Christians right prior to this in verse 25. Some of the other first followers of Jesus, Peter and John, are sent to Jerusalem. They're going to go preach. And all these crazy, amazing things are happening and people's lives are being changed. Now in that, this guy Philip, this follower of Jesus, a leader in the early church, is told to go south from down to the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. And if you're not familiar with the geography, the author wants you to know exactly what type of place he's going to. This is a desert place. Now, you just heard me say where like, Peter and John get to go. Peter and John, they get to go to Jerusalem. That's the Holy Land. All kinds of great things are bound to occur. Where does Philip get sent? Thematically in the Bible, what is the antithesis of the promised land? The desert. What happens in the desert? judgment. God takes out a whole generation. In the Exodus story, Jesus is tempted in the desert. It's hot in the desert. No food in the desert. So it's sort of like, they get to go, man, they get to go there, and I'm going to the desert. On top of that, this phrase in Greeks, uh, towards the south, can also mean at noon. So it's not exactly clear what's being said, but there could be a play on words so that it's trying to say, go to the south at noon, which makes it even worse because what's the worst time to be in the desert? At noon. So you might have found yourself in a similar situation where Peter and John, man, God gave them the good lot. The Holy Land, Jerusalem, miracles are going to occur. Everyone's going to be like, oh, look at great work of the apostles, man. Where, what, what is my lot in life? The desert. At noon. By myself. 
lonely. It's like, who'd want to do that? But look at what Philip does. He rose and went. He actually obeys. He doesn't pull one of those, I'm going to do one of those Jonah things, God. You say this way, I'm going to go this way. He rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Kandaki, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. All right, so we're introduced to the main character of this story, the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, there's several things that are revealed about him just in these couple verses, and they're all really important. First, he is Ethiopian. He's from Ethiopia. And what you need to know is that the region of Ethiopia at this time is not the same Ethiopia that would appear on a map today. The region that's talking about in the first century world in this, this region would be more akin to modern Sudan. But what's really important is that both the Greeks and the Romans considered that region of modern Sudan, which was called the Meroe Kingdom, the ends of the earth. It was south of Egypt, and they said, man, if you just keep going further than that, it's just desert. We're not saying there's nothing past that, but for all intents and purposes, that's the ends of the earth. So you have this Ethiopian man who has symbolic representation. He is one from the ends of the earth, the furthest you can go. He has symbolic significance. Additionally, he's wealthy. How do we know he's wealthy? He's got a chariot. So you know by the car he drives. You know what I mean? You could tell a socioeconomic status usually by the car, the car being driven. Not all the time because some people take out uh, too big of a loan and they ain't going to be driving that in two years. Uh, you know what I mean? So you can, it's not always indicative of reality, but in this case it is. He's got a chariot. He's wealthy. That's not common. And he's wealthy probably because his, his vocation. He's a court official to the queen. He's in charge of, of her treasure. In other words, he's like the CFO or minister of finance, which would have paid well. The third way we know he's wealthy, it says he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. Now, we all have like Bibles and books, and so it doesn't seem like a big deal to us. But for someone to have a manuscript, a scroll of a book of the Bible, this is significant. This, this is something that would have cost a lot of money, would have taken a lot of work, and he has one. So he's wealthy because the car he drives, who he works for, and he actually has a scroll. Now, the third feature of this Ethiopian man, the kind of awkward one, he's a eunuch. Now, this is, this is a, a family show, and so we're not going to get into all the details of what exactly that means, but I'll say this. Being a eunuch rem- means that you've had your male reproductive organs removed. Okay. Now, this was done for a number of reasons. Sometimes it was done as punishment. Sometimes it was done to people who lost in battle, POWs. In some situations, people did it willingly. But what's occurring here corresponds to this man's vocation. If you were going to be near the queen, you could pose no threat to the queen. So people who were near the queen were often made to be eunuchs in the ancient world. So there could be no transgression. So this is a man who has this done. He's wealthy in that sense, but he's poor socially because there is also social stigma that came with this. 
Now, he is a, at least, we don't know all the details, he at least has a desire to know the God of Israel because he's reading the scroll of Isaiah. And if he's familiar with other Jewish scriptures, he would know Deuteronomy 23, which says that if you are a eunuch, you cannot enter into the assembly of the Lord. Which a way of saying is you can't enter into like the, the, the inner walls or the inner courts in the temple or maybe more succinctly and better put, you could not come as close to the presence of God as the non-eunuch counterpart. You're removed from that. And so because of that, he's a man who would know humiliation. He would know, um, he would carry certain stigmas, so he might have some money, but there's some also bad things going on in his life because of his vocation. So he's an Ethiopian from the ends of the earth. He's wealthy, but he's a eunuch and carries with him all the baggage that comes with that. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now this is the easiest evangelism moment ever. Like, and you have to picture it too, because at the end it says, and he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So at the end he gets invited, after the conversation he gets invited. So for the first part, the dude's like jogging next to the chariot and he's listening in. That's Isaiah. Hey, I, you know, you know what you're reading, man? And then it's like, perfect. No, why don't you come in and explain it to me? Boom. Yes. Awesome. It's perfect evangelism moment. Now this is where it's creepy. This is haunting creepy. What is this man reading in the scroll of Isaiah? The passage of the scriptures that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before his shearers is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. So he's reading about this mysterious figure who's going to be led to the slaughter. This mysterious figure is someone who knows humiliation. He has justice denied him. And then there's this phrase in verse 33, who can describe his generation? It's kind of hard to translate the idea, but it may be, it's something along the lines of who, who can speak of his descendants? In other words, he, he, he likely doesn't have physical descendants. Now, follow that. There's this person who is suffering. He's led to the slaughter. He knows humiliation. He, he knows what it's like not to have physical descendants. And, and, and at this point, you could see how the story of the mysterious figure and the story of the Ethiopian eunuch run parallel. They both have a very similar story. And so he's reading about this mysterious figure. Now, this is where it gets even crazier. There's a reason why this man might have a copy of the book of Isaiah. It might be the best hope he has. This man might cling to the words of the prophet Isaiah to find comfort and hope. Because just three chapters removed from the section that he was reading out loud is this in the book of Isaiah. Let not the foreigner 
who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So in the book of Isaiah, there's this hope for the foreigner and the eunuch. And the eunuch is going to, to the eunuchs who keep the covenant, it says that God will give in his house and within his walls a monument and a name. So within the house, within the walls, the place the eunuch was not allowed to go. God is saying, there and precisely there, you will have a monument and a name that is better than mere physical descendants. I will give you an everlasting name that will not be cut off. So you can see how this man would cling to the promises of Isaiah. I know humiliation. I know what it's like to be on the outside, to be the outcast, to feel shame. I know all of that. I know I'm cut off in a sense from God and my people, but in this God's book is this promise that I will not only just be brought in, I will be given so much more. So he clings to this. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask does this prophet, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? So this man says, who, who, who is the prophet talking about? Who is this mysterious figure? And, and the assumption with that is, who is this mysterious figure and how does this relate to the promises elsewhere in the book of Isaiah and what possibly might that mean for me in my situation? And then Philip says, beginning with the scriptures, he tells him the good news, the gospel. And we don't know exactly what that conversation looked like, but you can hypothetically like see Philip like asking him, okay, so you have Isaiah, do you, how much of the other scriptures do you know? you know about Genesis? Like, you know about Adam and Eve? Okay. Um, you know about our father Abraham? Do you know about David? Do you remember that David was promised an everlasting throne? And I know um, it's been said that that throne and that, 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 that there's no more descendants, no proper heirs to take the throne, but you need to know that a rightful descendant has arisen. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, and we saw him with our eyes and he did miracles and he had these teachings that no one, no one could even come close to. They were the most beautiful, powerful, moving teachings we've ever heard. And the miracles were, were incredible. And then we saw demons and unclean spirits flee from his presence. But the tides of popular opinion turned against this man and his own people rejected him. You see this? Do you see the parallel? His own people rejected him. And he was given up to humiliation and like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. He was crucified. But here is the thing, the plan from all along, and you know this because you know the book of Isaiah. 
was that there was a lamb slain before the foundations of the world, that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, our Messiah, would go down into death itself and give the death blow to death. He would defeat Satan's sin and death. And now the good news is going out, and God is announcing that the outcast, the outsider, anybody can come into the family of God. And the good news for you today is that you can be forgiven and brought in. And so you could see the eunuch, I mean, at this point, going like, this is almost too good to be true. I mean, human beings reject me. The assumption is that, of course, God would reject me. By the way, that's a a very powerful mental move that many people do. Human beings reject me. How could God ever accept me? And at the heart of the gospel message is even if human beings reject you, God draws you in. And so there's this news that's like too good to be true. He goes, okay, if this mysterious figure is this Jesus of Nazareth, and what, if that means that I too can be brought in, the promises and prophecy of Isaiah are coming true and they could be applied to me. If that's true, why don't you baptize me? It's like, prove it. Baptize me. Get in the water with me and baptize me. Prove it. And it's like, by the way, there's water. Where are we? In the desert at noon. And Philip ran into a guy reading Isaiah out loud. And now there's water. So prove it. Baptize me. And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Okay, I just saw something that I didn't see before. This happens a lot of times, and sometimes uh, when it happens on the fly, I don't have time to share. But I have time to share. There's not another service after this. I don't have to drive anywhere. I don't have to drive to Hollister or anything like that. It won't take long. It's just quick. And it might not even be true. It's just subtle. But I want to use it as an example to show you how much... um, The Bible is constantly echoing the great stories. So there's a mini story, and this mini story is echoing greater stories. So first, let's just deal with this weird part. It says Philip was there, and then he was no more. And there's all kinds of debate about what that means. Did like Philip get taken up supernaturally, or was Philip just like, mission done, baptized later? And and he kind of ruled out, like, don't get caught up in that. The key point is that the eunuch leaves rejoicing. But something that I just caught is, um, remember, Peter and John, they get to go to Jerusalem. That's the Holy Land. The antithesis of the Holy Land is kind of the desert, okay? Now, what, how do you get out of the desert? Well, you have to go in the water and come out the other side. God parts the sea. And that image of Exodus and water is again and again. What is John the Baptist, where's John the Baptist baptized people? out in the desert type of thing. In the Exodus story, you always have these echoes of you're in the desert and there's nothing. And then somehow there's a miraculous salvation that takes place through the waters. When Israel goes into the promised land in the book of Joshua, they got to part the river. And so here again, we have this echo or an illusion that in the desert, in the least likely of places, there's salvation coming out of the water. Now, 
Whether that's intentional or not, here's the main point. This eunuch leaves rejoicing. He leaves rejoicing with joy, with jubilee. And what, is that, what does that mean? What does this story tell us? It tells us that no one is beyond the reach. That no one is beyond the reach of God. This person, remember, is from the ends of the earth. There's symbolic significance in this figure. He's real. He's a historical reality, yes, but that historical reality also bears symbolic significance in the narrative structure. And what is that? that God is saving people from the ends of the earth and the type of people he's saving from the ends of the earth are the people you'd least likely expect. The eunuch, the outcast, the outsider, and he's reaching and drawing all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation unto himself. So no one's beyond the reach. Now, here's the thing. Um, it teaches us that God loves the outcast and the outsider. And, and oftentimes um, we can forget we could take for granted the fact that that's not a presupposition or an assumed reality. What I mean by that is this. You've had 2,000 years of Christian tradition to tell you that caring for the outcast and the outsider is a good thing. But that is not an assumption held by the ancient world. The assumption was, if you're an outcast or an outsider, you're that way because you deserve it. If something bad happens to you, it's because you deserved it. God or the gods, whatever your religious structure was in that time, they could, they could protect you from it. So if something bad happens, you deserve it. But the message of the gospel is that no, the outcast and the outsider, even from the ends of the earth, is loved. And they are not beyond the reach of God. Now, oftentimes, we are really good at believing that on an intellectual level and maybe comforting others. So if someone else you know, maybe a friend, is they, they feel guilt or shame or they're beyond the love of God, they're beyond their reach, you tell them, no, no, no sin is too great, God loves you, and you do that encouragement. But on a kind of operating system level for yourself, you don't internalize those truths. Like, no, I'm too far. My sin is too great. My shame is too grand. You don't know the type of humiliation in my life. And what this story is saying is, no, the eunuch from the ends of the earth is not beyond the reach. You cannot run far enough from this God's reach. You can't go far enough. And that's like really, really, really good news. So whatever has happened, whatever's been going on in your life, what's been happening in the present or the past, you're not beyond the pale. You're not beyond the reach of God. And it's really good news because it also means that there are people in your life who you pray for. Hear me on this. There are people in your life who you pray for. And you pray for them, but deep down, you believe there's no way in the world this person's ever going to change. No one's beyond their reach. No one is ever beyond the reach of the heavenly father. So you keep praying because God reaches the eunuch from the ends of the world and brings him in. And he does it in the desert. So no one's beyond the reach. You're not beyond the reach. The other thing it teaches us is that when we are faithful in small things, we might be put in the right place at the right time in the right circumstance for God to do something significant. Remember, where are we? In the desert. 
What time? Probably noon, when no one else should be on that road. And what's the circumstance? He's jogging alongside a chariot, and he hears the, gospel, the, the prophet Isaiah being spoken. And he says, you need, need me to explain that? Yeah, come on in. But none of that would have happened unless he was faithful in the small things. Go to the desert, just do it. Now, it doesn't mean every time you're, you feel convicted about something, some miracle story is going to happen. But what it does tell us is just to be faithful to do the right thing when it's presented. If you feel you need to, if it's the desert, just, all right. And God might be working in a way and puts you in the right place at the right time with the right circumstance. Now, this man leaves rejoicing. And where does he go? He goes back to Ethiopia, to the kingdom of the Meroe. And when he arrives, he's probably a little different. They're like, man, you got a little extra step in yourself today, a little chippery, a little bit more happy, like, what's up? And then he's asked the same question that the shepherds in the song, Angel We Have Heard on High, is asked, why this jubilee? Why your joyous strains prolong? What the gladsome tidings be which inspire your heavenly song? What the gladsome tidings be? What, are, what is that? It's the good news. It's the good news. And the Ethiopian eunuch tells friends and family and his workers and people in his kingdom, I've got good news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know I shouldn't. I'm, I'm a eunuch. It seems really bad. It's like I'm a bad... No, no. I have good news. And that question is a question that I want us to all be asked. If you are a follower of Jesus, we want people to ask us, why this jubilee? What's up? And the reason why that is so important in our particular place, in particular time, particular circumstance, is if you've noticed, things, there's just an air of gloominess and pessimism and being down, right? It's kind of just in the air. It's, it's the cultural moment. And what happens is, and this should never be, but it's true, it's, it, it's, it happens to the, to the church. It's happened to me. We begin to adopt that same gloomy, pessimistic outlook of the world. And we're just down. We're down. It's like, man, there's... But the Christian says, the sky actually may be falling. Still got good news. Still got good news. It's not a denial of bad things. So I'm not saying if you're a Christian, you should be happy and filled with joy all the time. I'm saying you could acknowledge reality. Like, hey, truth be told, I'm a train wreck. It's the worst decade of my life. This is happening. This is happening. But right here, I got some good news, man. Even if the sky is falling, I got this good news. And when people ask why are you, why do you have this joy? Where, where does this jubilee come from? You do what Philip did to this Ethiopian eunuch and what the Ethiopian eunuch did when he got back home. I got a story to tell you about Jesus of Nazareth and what he did on behalf of men and women. So as Christians, we want to live in such a way that people go, what's up with you? What's up with you? And maybe nothing will happen. 
but maybe you'll be put in the right place at the right time with the right circumstance. But it doesn't matter because you trust results to God. You just be faithful. You just be faithful. Now, we're going to transition to communion and uh, a, a worship song. And uh, I'm going to set up the worship song because it's a little different. It's a little weird. It's tech, it is a Christmas song, but it's, it's a bit jarring. It doesn't sound like a traditional Christmas song. It kind of just hits hard, uh, which, which means it's, it's one of my favorite Christmas songs. Um, we've sang it here maybe, we've, for sure once, maybe twice. Uh, it's entitled, This is War. And the reason why I wanted to kind of kick off sort of our Christmas season with this song is it captures one of the elements that's missing in the Christmas story as we kind of tell it, especially in the modern sense. Um, human beings are enslaved to powers. Satan, sin, death. The scripture speaks of powers and principalities. And it speaks of a, a spiritual war at place. And at the heart of the, the Christian message and the Christian story is, is that God himself entered into the war on behalf of men because men were powerless to defeat their enemies. And so God himself comes as the vulnerable child to grow and die on the cross. And he's doing that to defeat Satan, sin, and death, the powers and principalities at war with humans. Now, as modern people, we don't even like these categories. This is why we don't talk about them at Christmas. Because anything dealing with like the spiritual that's not completely material is like, well, that's, that's kind of weird. But it's all over the Bible. It's all over the Bible. And so what's amazing about this story is that when wars typically take place, the general comes and there's tons of bloodshed. But the Christmas story, the Christian story, is that when the general came, the king came, the commander came, when God himself came, it's his blood that is shed. And paradoxically, when his body is broken and his blood is shed, that is actually the, the defeat of the enemies. And in doing so, there can be freedom for human beings. And it's this twist on how wars operate, but make no mistake about it, there is this spiritual reality and this battle at place. And Christmas celebrates our King entering into this battle on our behalf. He is our victor and our champion, and he gives us his victory and his grace. And even greater than that, just like the story we shared, we shared today, he draws us in into his family so that people from the ends of the earth might know that they are loved. And you are an extension of that story. For 2,000 years, this gospel message has been going from person to person to person and person. And we now carry it with us. And so may we carry it with us and tell the world of this jubilee. Let's stand as we take communion. Warrior kings and generals break the bodies of others 
99% of all wars are that. It's, it's violence and bloodshed. The gospel is, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Someone else went and fought. And that victory is given to us precisely because his body was broken on our behalf. And so Jesus says, this is my body. Take this and remember me. So today we remember what you've done for us on our behalf, Lord. Likewise, blood is always shed, but the gospel contains the message that it was the blood of God himself that was shed on our behalf in order not that he might slay us as enemies, but he might change us from enemies into family. Blood was shed to make family out of enemies, and we are all a part of that story. So Lord, help us to be faithful as we proclaim this truth, the truth of your death and resurrection until you return. Father, we give you thanks today. As always, we have so many reasons to be thankful. And Lord, as we close with this song, I pray that our, our hearts and our minds would be turned to you and we would reflect on the great story contained in the Christmas message. May we go with joy and happiness, not pretending that nothing's bad or we don't have problems, but no matter what may be happening, a battle was fought and won on our behalf and we've been brought into that victory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.